0: Welcome to a history of Europe: The Battles, the Battle of Fornovo, Part Four of Five. On the 30th of May, 1483, a new French king, Charles VIII, was crowned at the Cathedral of Rheims. Three decades had now passed since the end of the Hundred Years' War, a conflict which had caused so much devastation to the French countryside and destabilising of French politics. When Charles ascended to the throne, at the same time that the Kingdom of England was still embroiled in a long-running civil war known as the War of the Roses, France was fast recovering her prosperity and confidence. As described in a previous podcast on the Battle of Nancy, 1477, Charles VIII's father, Louis XI, who reigned from 1461 to 1483, nicknamed the Universal Spider, was a skilful and very cunning diplomat who helped destabilise a rival power centre to the east, the Duchy of Burgundy. Louis took advantage of the situation to seize numerous Burgundian territories, although his full ambitions were thwarted by the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I, as I will relate in a future episode. King Louis XI attempted to expand French royal power in all directions. In 1463 he attacked and occupied Perpignan in southwest France, and most significantly he gained direct royal control of Provence and Dauphiné in southeastern France. Royal power over Provence was achieved because its owner, the Duke of Anjou, died childless and willed his inheritance to his cousin Louis XI in 1481. With the integration of Provence and its long Mediterranean coastline, including the ports of Marseille and Toulon, France now had the potential to be a great Mediterranean power. These gains represented the first time the French had pushed against their eastern border for six centuries since the Treaty of Verdun in 843, with major repercussions for the future of Europe. Ever the pragmatist, King Louis XI fostered loyalty in his newly acquired territories by respecting local autonomy, and so helped assimilate them into France. Charles VIII, aged only 13 at the time of his ascension, did not cut an impressive figure. Physically, he was short with thin legs, an oversized head, bulgy eyes and a long, hooked nose. He did not inherit his father's intelligence, in fact, is generally regarded as being mentally backwards. The first part of his reign was dominated by a war against the Duchy of Brittany in northwest France, which until then was largely independent of France, only subject to the overlordship of the French King. The French took advantage of a civil war among the Bretons and launched an invasion in 1487. In spite of support from Spain, England and Emperor Maximilian, the French forces were victorious, soundly defeating the Bretons in battle. When the Duke of Brittany died in 1490, the French used a combination of military and diplomatic pressure to persuade the 11-year-old heiress of Brittany and to set aside her unconsummated marriage with Maximilian and marry Charles instead in December 1491. The resolution of the Breton Wars in favour of France helped integrate the duchy into the kingdom, but left a bitter legacy between the French Valois kings and the Habsburg dynasty of Maximilian, and proved to be the first major instance in a long series of conflicts between these two great powers. Most directly relevant to the subject of today's podcast were the French gains in the south-east of France. When the Duke of Anjou died in 1481, the French kings gained not only Provence, but also long-standing claims of the Angevin line to the crown of Naples and Jerusalem. The background is described in an earlier podcast on the revolt of the Sicilian Vespers, 1282, available on my Patreon page. In short, the French prince, Charles of Anjou, invaded southern Italy in 1265 as part of his ambition to build for himself and his dynasty a Mediterranean empire. Although thwarted in his grand scheme, he did stay in control of the kingdom of Naples. Charles's ally and fellow Frenchman, Pope Clement IV, conferred on Charles the kingdom as a papal fief. Consequently, the popes continued to assert right to decide on the succession to the Neapolitan throne. Naples passed into the control of the Aragonese, which the papacy eventually accepted. But the descendants of Charles Van never gave up on their claims to the kingdom, which therefore now passed on to the kings of France. King Louis XI had liked to play a role in Italian politics as a mediator and arbiter when Italian states sought support in their quarrels with each other. His ambitions of conquest lay elsewhere. He allied France with Florence, with whom important commercial links were developed. And relations with neighbouring Milan were also generally good, more complex since the previous ruling family, the Visconti had marriage links to the French royal house dating back to the 14th century. A consequence of the coup of Francesco Sforza, who became Duke of Milan in 1450, was that the French kings were unable to say that their claim to the duchy was just as strong as that of the ruling Sforza. Although the French kings never relinquished their claims to the Duchy of Milan, Charles VIII and Louis XI never acted on them. The cousin of Charles, Louis of Orleans, the future Louis XII, in contrast made little secret that his ambition was to take Milan for himself. The questions around the Milanese succession became more of an issue when the son and successor of Francesco Sforza, Duke Gariazzo Maria Sforza, was assassinated in 1476. His son and heir, Jean Gariazzo Sforza, was only seven years old, and so a power struggle developed around who would be regent. Strong leadership was needed, not only to keep the dynasty together, but to protect Milan from the external threats. The struggle for the regency was won by an uncle of the young duke by the name of Ludovico il Moro, named the Moor for his dark complexion. Ludovico quickly displayed a natural affinity for good rule as a man of great intelligence, generosity and kindness, and so it was hoped that his regency would restore stability to the dynasty. He was a keen patron of arts, and helped make Milan one of the leading cultural centres of Europe, employing the talents of, among others, Leonardo da Vinci. However, as the legitimate duke grew of age, it became clear that Ludovico had no intention of relinquishing any power to the young man. Even if Jean Guerreiro was prepared to put up with this treatment, his wife Isabella of Aragon, the granddaughter of King Ferrante, was certainly not Isabella was strong-willed and ambitious and angry that her husband was being shut out from power by Ludovico, so she called upon her grandfather to sweep Ludovico aside in favour of her husband. Ludovico in Moro, fearing retaliation from the Duke of Naples, allied himself with the French king, allowing him to use the port city of Genoa, and indicating he would help Charles militarily should he wish to stake his claim to Naples. Ludovico may have believed that these actions would consolidate his position, but the politics of Italy were about to become even more turbulent than normal, with the increasing influence of external powers. More than a couple of times, Italian states had previously used the threat of bringing in the Angevins, or their heirs, as a diplomatic weapon against King Frente of Naples. Most recently, Venice had done so in the 1480s, and the papacy in 1492 but inviting powerful foreign lords to intervene in local disputes was a dangerous game. Doing so would risk accusations of betraying the interests of Italy. But still, many Italians were slow to understand the ambitions of foreign rulers who had their own agendas. The reason for the French invasion of Italy of 1494, however, can be found as much in France as in Italy. In the book, The Italian Wars, 1494 to 1559, Michael Mallet and Christine Shaw write, quote, For all the intrigues in Italy which prepared the way for the French invasion of 1494, it has to be seen primarily as a French initiative conditioned by events and attitudes in France. The single most important factor in bringing it to fruition was the attitude of the king himself. End quote. The justification given by Charles VIII for invading Naples, apart from taking his rightful claims to the throne, was that southern Italy would be an excellent launch pad for a crusade against the Ottoman Turks. Half a century before the Ottomans had conquered Constantinople, and now they represented a serious danger in eastern and central Europe and along the Mediterranean coastline. Charles was eager to lead a new crusade personally and to save Christendom. Also buoyed by recent French military successes, Charles was simply eager for any opportunity to lead his army and his nobility into an active campaign. The majority of his councillors were opposed to any expedition to conquer Naples, particularly one to be led by the king in person, for fear of him dying or being captured. In the end though, Charles was determined to go ahead, and preparations were made in 1493. And then on the 25th of January, 1494, King Ferente of Naples passed away. Although 70 years old, his death was sudden and unexpected, and renewed French enthusiasm for the invasion. Ferente's heir, King Alfonso II of Naples, aware of the French preparations, acted decisively to bolster the legitimacy of his inheritance. In return for papal confirmation of his position, Alfonso offered Pope Alexander VI, Rodrigo Borgia, money plus grants of estates and offices for the Pope's children. Charles was disappointed but undeterred and led his army across the Alps in the summer of 1494. The King's cousin, Louis of Orleans, commanded a separate naval force which sailed from Marseille to Genoa and joined forces with Charles at Asti, a town in Piedmont which thereafter remained the main French base in northern Italy. Charles VIII had available the finest heavy cavalry in Europe, organised into permanent units raised for and paid for by the Crown. For infantry he relied heavily on Swiss mercenaries, who in the 1490s had a very good reputation for their fighting skills. They were famously well trained and disciplined, and renowned for their ability to stand and break up cavalry charges. Their main weapons of choice were pikes, halberds and two-handed swords. An important difference between the Swiss mercenaries and traditional medieval warriors was one of military culture. Their attitude was to win at all costs, and they did not hesitate to kill the wounded enemy instead of taking them prisoner. In this way, they challenged the medieval concern for gentlemanly behaviour. As well as the Swiss, Charles also took with him German mercenaries from the Rhine region, Scottish infantry archers and Genoese crossbowmen. Contemporary estimates of the size of the whole French army vary between 30,000 and 60,000. Modern historians believe the number was about 30,000 at most, but still a very considerable size. The French army was also equipped with formidable firepower in the form of mobile cannons, which could be used to break up enemy infantry units as well as damage city walls. They were pulled by horses and had recent improved mechanisms, where the gun barrels could be elevated or lowered much more easily than before. The French were also noted for their greater use of iron rather than stone balls. The Italian rulers were now faced with the reality of a French invasion into the peninsula. This was not an easy prospect, even for Ludovico Sforza, despite the encouragement he had given Charles for many months. He was in a position where he had no choice but to give military assistance to the French, and must have been unnerved about the prospect of a very large French army marching through his territory. He had expected the French to travel to Naples largely by sea, and with a smaller force, not the full deployment of the French crown. He vacillated and attempted to persuade Charles to delay the campaign, but without success. King of France of Naples, meanwhile, was putting his defences in order, renewed his contracts with a number of condottieri. His strategy was to try and prevent Charles and his army ever reaching his kingdom. To this end, he tried to stoke up a revolt in Genoa, where Charles's ships were based, and sent an advance party of men-at-arms to Milanese territory. The original plan for Alfonso to follow the rest of the army was delayed because he needed to get agreement with Pope Alexander VI to pass his army through the Papal States. Alexander demanded in return that many of the troops would be used to defend Rome, something Alfonso was reluctant to agree to. Alexander would probably have liked to have stayed neutral in the whole conflict, but he felt an obligation to support Alfonso, having just confirmed his title as king. As for the other great Italian powers, the Venetians, in response to separate requests for support from Alfonso of Naples and King Charles, maintained strict neutrality, giving as an excuse the need to be on guard against the Turkish threat to their colonies in the eastern Mediterranean and the Florentine Republic were in a state of disarray after the recent death of Lorenzo the Magnificent, and a surge in support for a radical preacher named Savonarola, as described in the previous episode. The main French army under Charles, joined by Ludovico and Moro and a significant Milanese contingent, started their march southwards in October, while a much smaller force remained in Asti under the command of Louis of Orleans. The first engagement of the campaign took place at the port town of Rapallo, some twenty miles south of Genoa, between the French and Advance Guard of Neapolitans. The result was a resounding French victory, and though on a comparatively small scale, put an end to Alfonso's plans to disrupt the invasion in northern Italy. It also provided a foretaste to the shocked Italian troops of the cruelty of the Swiss mercenaries, who, as was their custom, massacred the wounded and sacked the little town. The next confrontation took place in the stronghold of Mordano, in the territory of Imola. After the defenders, which included a number of Neapolitans, refused to surrender on terms, Mordano was bombarded and taken. It was full of refugees from the surrounding area, many of whom were slaughtered with the defenders. Writes Malerton Shaw, the Sack of Modena became part of the Italian narrative of Charles' expedition as the first of a series of violent assaults on small towns and strongholds that dared to defy the French. After that, there were no further resistance to them in the region of Romania. Ludovico Sforza was becoming increasingly concerned at the size of the French army and the intentions of its leaders. In an attempt to grapple with the dangerous situation, over the summer he engaged in secretive diplomacy with the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian. His envoys managed to persuade Maximilian, in return for an enormous bribe and for putting Milan under imperial overlordship, to name Ludovico the rightful Duke of Milan in the event of the premature death of the legitimate Duke, his nephew Gian Galeazzo. The young duke died soon after, on the 21st of October, almost certainly by poisoning, prompting Ludovico to hasten back to Milan and assure his position as the new duke. The Franco-Milanese army, meanwhile, continued their march southwards, sending envoys on to Florence to ask Piero de' Medici for a free passage through the Republic. Piero, however, having previously pledged support to Alfonso and expecting other Italian leaders to do likewise, vacillated for several days. Without a clear response, the impatient Charles decided to treat Florentine territory as hostile and began attacking and sacking any Florentine towns which dared to stand in his way. Piero at last decided to act and sent a mercenary army to protect his border castles. Yet it soon became apparent that what little support Piero had in the city was slipping away. As Savonarola continued his fiery sermons full of terrifying omens and excoriations of the city's leadership, a sense of despondency and of resignation fell upon the city. Behold, cried Savonarola, the sword has descended, the scourge has fallen, the prophecies are being fulfilled. It is the Lord God who is leading on these armies. Behold, I shall unloose waters over the earth. It is not I but God who foretold it. Nor is it about to come... It has already come. Even among Piero's own branch of his family, many were already openly speaking of surrender. Piero, hoping to recover his crumbling personal authority, decided to conduct the negotiations himself. In emulation of his father, Lorenzo, whose courageous personal mission to Naples had saved Florence 15 years before, he decided to slip out of the city alone to meet Charles VIII. In truth, it was an act of desperation rather than of bravery. The French king treated Piero with contempt from the beginning and demanded to seize the port cities of Pisa and Livorno. The abject Piero caved in with barely a whimper and agreed to all Charles' demands. Although he had no authority from the republican councils to do so, he gave orders to the garrisons of his fortresses to admit the French. Charles must have been absolutely delighted. In truth, he was in desperate need of a defensive line to protect his army from becoming encircled in Italy and to allow for his eventual march back to France. Paul Stratham, in his book, The Medici, Godfathers of the Renaissance, writes of the Event, quote, Despite Piero's much weaker forces, he had considerable bargaining power at his disposal, and had he shown greater strength of character, he might well have gained respect of Charles VIII. They might even have been able to come to terms that would have been beneficial to them both, for this was not to be. End quote. On his return to Florence, Piero was treated as a traitor and sent into exile by the angry citizens. On the 17th of November, Charles's forces entered Florence in triumph through a symbolic breach made in the city walls. The Florentines were wary that the army might turn to pillaging, but Florence was more valuable to Charles an ally than as a looted and hostile city. The Florentines accepted the temporary loss of their towns and fortresses, but secured Charles's promise that they would be restored at the end of the expedition. The agreement was signed on the 25th of November, and three days later Charles continued his march onwards to his next destination the city of Rome. As in Florence, the citizens of Rome nervously allowed the franco milanese army into the city without putting up resistance, and Charles ordered his men not to loot or commit any acts of violence. Pope Alexander at first refused to meet the king and shut himself up in the main fortress of Rome, the Castel Sant'Angelo. Charles made it clear he had no intention of taking action against the Pope for support of Alfonso of Naples. He negotiated free passage through the Papal States, provisions for his army, and a temporary tenure by the king of key fortresses. One other condition Charles insisted on was that Alexander would surrender to him a man named Jem, who was the half brother of the Turkish Sultan Bayezid II and a rival claimant to the Ottoman throne. Charles was considering the possibility of using Jem in a future crusade against the Turks. Whether or not that was ever likely to happen, Jem died a couple of months later, most likely of an illness such as pneumonia. On the 28th of January, 1495, after a short stay in Rome, Charles continued his way southwards towards Naples. It may seem surprising how easily the Italians had capitulated, but perhaps not if one considered Charles never attempted to conquer the entire peninsula. All he was interested in was free passage and for the Italian rulers not to support Naples. Most leaders, including only of the leading Italian powers and minor states, but also local barons, were not prepared to see their lands ruined and their strongholds destroyed in Alfonso's cause. From the beginning, Charles's troops had showed the heavy price to be paid for defying them. The message was clear and most Italians chose to submit. King Alfonso, alarmed by the reports of the French advance, chose to flee to a monastery in Sicily and abdicate in favour of his son, who was henceforth known as Ferdinand II, or Ferrandino. Ferandino tried to stand and fight, but its forces were quickly overwhelmed by the invaders, who, as elsewhere, showed no mercy to any town or fortress which attempted to resist their advance. Within the Kingdom of Naples, all resistance quickly melted away, Even in the city of Naples, Ferrandino was unable to rally the people to his support, and, like his father, fled to Sicily. The only significant resistance came from defenders of the main fortress of the city of Naples, but, completely isolated, they could only hold out for three weeks. King Charles VIII, with Naples now secure and only isolated pockets of resistance elsewhere, began to establish his government throughout the kingdom. As always, it would be great to hear from you. You can contact me directly at carl at historyeurope.net. You can visit the blog www.historyeurope.net. You can go to the Facebook page for History of Europe Key Battles podcast, or you can contact me on Twitter at historyeuropekb, KB KB for Key Battles. I mentioned earlier my Patreon.com page. Patreon is a website where you can financially support creators of various kinds, such as musicians, artists, or in my case, a podcaster. This podcast costs money to create mainly hosting fees and research material, and every contribution goes to help me make the podcast better. For a subscription of $3 a month, you will gain access to bonus episodes, such as the set on the Sicilian Vespers. You can also help for free by giving the podcast a review on iTunes or your favourite podcatcher. Thank you for listening to History of Europe Key Battles and I hope you can join me next week for the concluding part of the Battle of Fornava of 1495. Until then, have a great week and goodbye.